Staging Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices and experiences. Welcome to another episode of Staging Sound, our podcast on all things to do with sound and music and technology and theatre, obviously, and performance and all those kind of things. And today I'm, I'm very happy to welcome Konstantinos Tomaidis, who's also been on the previous episode, uh, and you will remember him from then, because uh, he's going to tell us a bit more about a project he's recently done, uh, which was a, a combination of research and practice, really, and that will take us very meta. It will take us all about sort of theatre, about theatre music and music and sound and all matter of things. And, and uh, I'm very, very happy to, for him to explain. Uh, just as a reminder, Konstantinos is a senior lecturer in drama, theatre and performance at the University of Exeter in the UK. He's published widely on all matters to do with voice and performance and performer training as well. Uh, for example, um, uh, voice studies, critical approaches to process performance and ex experience, which was from 2015. Uh, also the wonderfully concise Theatre and Voice from 2017. And he's also one of the editors of the Interdisciplinary Voice Studies Journal, which uh, you may want to ask your library to subscribe to. Um, with me today as my sort of co-host and, and another interested uh, a person to ask Constantino's questions or to, to find out more about his project is Millie Taylor. Millie Taylor has also been on the podcast before. She's the funder and the chair of the musical at the University of Amsterdam. And she has, uh, again, also been a practitioner for many, many years. She's toured Britain and Europe as a freelance musical director, musical theatre, and she's published widely on the musical, but also she's published recently on theatre music and sound at the RSC, Macbeth to Matilda, so really a book, uh, this, this is from 2018, a book that's very much at the heart of the theme of our podcast. Welcome both of you. Well, Konstantinos, uh, you've got plenty to tell us. Uh, give, give us an insight in your project, uh, which is a, about a Sophocles play. Tell us more about that. So thank you, David, for the kind introduction. Thank you, Mili. Hello. <laughs> so uh, the, the play, it's called in Greek, Ichnefte. In English, has been translated as trackers, and in German as sniffing hounds. It's quite an interesting play because it hasn't ha hasn't had a very long performance history, and that's because it's a fragment. For centuries, it has been missing, and we only had something like two or three lines in Hellenistic or Byzantine, you know, commentators talking about uh, the play. So all we knew was that it was a satire play written by Sophocles. And then, about a hundred years ago, 110 years ago, in 198, between 1908 and 1912, uh, an excavation took place in a city in Egypt, Oxyrinchus. And in there they found papyri, and there was this big archaeological uh, discovery, which was in one of the papyrus we had 400 lines from the play, the opening of the play, almost two-thirds of the play. So in a way this is a play that's also for us a document of what a satire play looked like, because we only have another satire play surviving by Euripides, and that's the only one and most complete fragment uh, we have. And... Uh, this is a play that dramatizes for us and stages for us uh, the invention of music, at least according to Greek uh, mythology. 
So essentially, it's one of the first place of uh, the European or Western canon that stages for us how music was created and how the first music was received by its listeners. So if I were to summarize the plot of the play, what happens is we are uh, on, uh, at the top of um, the mountain Silene, which is in Peloponnese, in Greece, or the mythic Arcadia, nowadays Corinth. And uh, God Apollo comes in really upset. And because it's a satire play, the gods are sort of between comedy and tragedy. So still, of course, very sort of godlike and stately. But at the same time, you know, we see him a little bit disheveled. And he says, I've been running throughout Greece. I have this big problem, which is Apollo was uh, the god of cattle. And uh, his cattle has been stolen. And he's running around Greece saying, what happened? Somebody used magic. Where, where are you know, my cattle? And he proclaims that whoever helps him to find the cattle is going to win uh, a lot from him. And comes in, Silenus, which is the old leader of the satire, saying, okay, I heard something about the prize. <laughs> Who was calling? And Apollo says, okay, I have this issue. He says, I'm going to find it for you. And what's the prize exactly? And very interestingly, uh, Apollo says it's gold and liberty, freedom. So whoever brings me, you know, my cattle back is going to win these two things. And uh, Silenus says to us, okay, I have a whole troop of my kids and followers, the satire, and they're going to come in and help. Enter the satire, the chorus of satire, and they start searching. So the first, I don't know, would say 100, 150 lines of the play are them trying to figure out where the cattle is. They're sort of sniffing and walking on all fours and trying to find where they are. And in all sorts of comedic manners, because they get really confused, they follow the traces on the ground. And at a certain point, they start getting really, really puzzled because the, the, the feet seem to be walking backwards and they don't know what's happening. As an Athenian audience, you know from the myth that uh, the god Hermes did that to the cattle. Okay. And they arrive at the entrance of a cave at Mount Kilini, uh, Sailini in English. And what happens there is as they search for the cattle, they hear a sound that they've never heard before, and they all get sort of frozen. They're like so scared, they're in awe, they cannot move. Silenus, who follows them, does not hear the sound. He's like, why have you stopped? Why are you frozen? We have a job to do. There is gold and freedom waiting for us and all that. And they're like, oh, Father, there's this sound. I don't know what's going on. I've never heard it before. He, there is a whole comedic speech that he goes on against them saying, oh, you're such cowards, and I did this and that in my youth, and you're afraid of a sound. I'm going to follow you. And by the end of the speech, they start you know, searching again, and we hear the sound for a second time. And Silenus goes, okay, that's something I've never had before. I'm really scared. You go and find it. I don't care about gold and freedom. Bye. And he disappears. So then the satire go, okay, I hear this sound coming from underneath the earth. And we're going to start stomping and dancing until we scare whoever makes the sound out. And they come up and they do that. There is a whole scene where they stomp and dance. And who comes out is the nymph of the mountain. 
Mount Selene. Now, the important thing is in ancient Greek imagination, it's not a goddess that resides in the, ma- uh, the mountain. It's actually animism. It's the mountain that comes out in, you know, female god, you know, nymph uh, form and talks to us and basically says, oh, you, you really disrupted what I was doing underneath. What do you want? Why did you make all this fuss? What was the, all this sound? Already you can see that the dramaturg is, what's the sound? <laughs> Who said this? Who said that? Can you define that sound for me? And she comes out, and um, because she knows the satire from before, uh, she sort of confides in them that what has been going on is uh, Zeus had an affair with another nymph, Mea, as he always did. When <laughs> <laughs> didn't he? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. He, he was quite a busy guy. And out of this affair, Mea gave birth to a new god, Hermes. Hermes. And Mea, the mother, got sick after birth. So the nymph, Selene, has been looking after the child. Uh, she has been the nurse. And they are hiding that child in the cave because they don't want Ira. Uh, Zeus's, you know, wife to, to find out about this affair. And then the satires ask, okay, what's this sound? Because we've been hearing a sound and we don't know what that is. And again, uh, the, the nymph, after a long discussion, confides in them that that child, because the god within six days grew up, grew real intelligent, and invented something new, a new machine. And that machine is an instrument. So for, for the Greeks, that's the invention of the lyre, an ancient sort of string um, instrument. And everybody's like, oh, what's this machine? What is the animal? And there's a whole riddle scene, because what uh, Cellini says is that animal did not have a voice when it was alive, but now when it's dead, it has a voice. They describe the instrument built out of an animal as having a voice that the animal did not have in, before it. And as she describes how the, the instrument was built, she says there is a whole game with the satires of what was the animal, and they're like, was this or that, and they end up, okay, Celine saying to them that it was um, a tortoise, and uh, it used it as the resonator, and then used reeds and uh, the entrails, the guts of sheep, to create the, the first chords, and it was stabilized, the resonator and all that, to, to create the, the resonance, with skin, from cattle. And she carries on talking about the instrument. Of course, the satires go, what? <laughs> and then they realize that the little god escaped and stole his brother's cattle, and then the cattle are underneath the earth. And of course, they accuse uh, uh, the little god as a thief. Selene goes, how dare you accuse uh, the son of a god? And roughly, this is where the fragment ends, but we know the, uh, the, um, the end of the play from commentators and from a couple of other sources. For example, there is a hymn to Hermes, and we know that in the end what happens is that uh, Apollo returns on stage, they tell him, okay, this is who stole your cattle. They found the, the cattle. Apollo gives them gold and freedom, and there is you know, a big party dancing and music, etc. And then the two brothers reconcile with each other, and what happens is Apollo also hears the sound of the music, goes, whoa, what's that? And he, he decides to forgive his brother and also hand the cattle in to him. And in Greek mythology, Hermes is the god of cattle, the the leader of cattle. 
and he, uh, on the condition that Hermes gives him the lyre, and this is how Apollo becomes the god of music. <laughs> so this is roughly the end of the, this is the plot and the end of, of the play. Amazing and great to have it sort of to have the whole context there because it's uh, it's obviously not a, as you say it's 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 hardly been done it's not a familiar play uh, some Greek plays we we know very well and they've been done also here in Germany a lot but but this one uh, I'm I'm hardly aware of can you tell us a bit about so you've you've mentioned already that that there is music and the invention of music and the invention of instruments and also it sounds like the effects and affects of music are, are you know front and center in this piece you talk about the fear you talk about how it's the unknown and Chion and others would call it the acousmatic nature of that sound a sound where we can't detect the source uh, we can't see where it's coming from and therefore we also don't know what it is and that seems to be an almost anthropological constant you know that, that those kinds of sounds um, disorient us or, or, or make us curious in a positive way in this case it's, it's to begin with it's fear so you've been involved in a production of that play and you've, you've mentioned uh, before uh, to us that you that there was a long research period obviously there's some textual research I assume some sort of you know looking into you know what can we find what, what uh, versions are there where where might fragments belong etc etc but I'm sure you've also researched musicality of ancient Greek theatre and so forth. Tell us a bit about that, that background and that research. For this particular production, which was directed by Mikhail Marmarignos, uh, Mikhail Marmarignos is one of the most prominent uh, Greek directors since the, the 80s in, in Greece. In a way, he's the advocate of postmodernism, devised theatre, uh, includes a lot of physicality and chorality in his uh, plays. And over the years, he has shifted also towards performances, site specificity, and what we would call here in Germany composed theatre. The, the production, it was the first full staging of the play for one of the big festivals in Epidaurus in Greece. And uh, for this, we were lucky enough to have an almost three-year period of research. So what happened was in 2019, when Mikhail Marmarinos decided to stage the play, we were co-teaching at a workshop in the ancient theatre of Dodoni on Greek drama and more particularly on sound and voice around Greek drama. He was teaching sort of acting classes and his approach is always very musical or at least informed by music and sound. And I was doing the voice classes, but was also his assistant in the acting classes, bringing in the element of voice and sound. So the first thing we did, we explored the text really deeply with the trainees about the, the plot and the characters, but also the moments when music occurs. And my job by the end of it, because I brought in my researcher self as well, was to create what I call a sound map of the text. So I, because I studied a little bit of philology before, you know, I left, my second degree was philology before I left to, to the UK. I went in uh, and I studied all the words for their meaning uh, uh, in terms of the Greek context, uh, especially words that had to do something with language and sound and music, what they meant in context and sort of trace the trajectory of uh, how people perceive sound or how sound appears in the play. And that became the basis of a second phase of research the following year in 2020. The play was commissioned by the Athens and Epidaurus Festival for 2020, but then the pandemic yes. came. And what we did with the company was that we spent about three months online researching uh, the, the play further and re starting rehearsals. And then the production was staged in 2021 in Epidaurus. 
uh, it had a small tour. There were two performances in Epidaurus. Then, importantly, the production a month later was performed at Mount Zeria, which is Aileen. It was a site next to the cave of Hermes. It was the very first uh, production of ancient theatre that happened in that play, uh, place. Sorry. And then it ended up in, in Athens in the Odeon of uh, Rhodus Atticus, very close to the theatre of Dionysus under Acropolis. So in that period of, uh, of research, yes, we worked around ancient Greek music and sounds, and some of the findings are quite interesting. So if we look at the text, the first things that became obvious out of this mapping, sonic mapping of the play, is that the play sonically begins by the usual sort of rhetoric and text-based sonicity of ancient Greek drama. When Apollo comes on stage, he, he uses words like, I proclaim, or whoever listens, this is the text that, that I swear by, etc. Then when Silenus and the satirists come, we have a slight shift to quality of voice, not necessarily text. They say, oh, I heard your passionate voice, and I thought you were upset, do you need my help? And then as we keep progressing, then we, as the satires start listening to that first sound, the language becomes a little bit confusing because they don't have vocabulary. They keep shifting between terms, and the terms they use are a lot of the time phony, phony, which means voice, or therma, which is, means word or text coming either by an animal or a human or an inanimate source. They don't know the source, as you said. For them, it's very acousmatic. And uh, they, there is this whole middle part where there is linguistic confusion that reflects their state or, or state of reception. And then when Cellini appears and they talk about it, then we start having really precise terms, the, the satires start saying, oh, I hear this vibration coming through the earth. Then they say, oh, this vibration which comes from a string, so they start realizing that the source has to do something with string. And then this vibration from a string that comes through scratching, so they have then another word, they realize that it's you know tactile and there is a human involved, or sort of a hand involved behind it. And as they talk, Cellini says to them, at the beginning, uh, this sound was made, this voice was made, and then the first sound, and then what she calls eolisma, which is um, what we would call melismatic sound, a little bit more, you know, differentiated. And then she calls it melos symphonon, which means melody that goes up and down and creates, you know, symphonic, which means harmonic sounds. So essentially, we hear that first we have a physical movement that produces a certain kind of sound, then a sound that gets more varied, a sound that acquires melodic features, and in the end, a sound that acquires harmonic features. So Cellini and the satire, when they talk about it, not only do they try to deal with this new sound, but they give us also a map towards understanding music. They say to us, you can hear it at first the sound, and then you have to decipher it. You can hear to sound uh, individually, then sound together as melody, and then sound together as harmony. So for me, there are two interpretations. Either as they hear little Hermes playing downstairs, you know, under the earth, Hermes becomes a little bit more skilled, <laughs> and the music develops. Or uh, 
Hermes, because he's a god, already is very skilled, but the listeners, the satires and Selene become more skilled listeners, and as they hear, they listen to, to this music a little bit better or in a more complex and sophisticated uh, way. But I think, I think there's something really interesting there about the fact that they have to name it. And so they've got to use language, but particularly they've got to use voice in order to name it. And so the whole premise of the play is actually founded on something quite bizarre because actually you're using voices, you're in chorus, and you're talking about sound. So to me, and the dancing as well. So the dancing is both rhythmic and musical. And so in a funny sort of way, they already had all these tools, they just hadn't named them. So is it actually a play about naming these things, or is it about the discovery of an instrument? I think it is, um, and actually in the chapter I talk about uh, this aspect of the play quite at length. I think it's two things at the same time. One is precisely, as you said, that music comes to our language, to our terms, to our understanding, so there is a codification of it taking uh, place. And voice uh, has this very interesting role in the play that it becomes an anchor for the music, a comment. So if you go to, 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 to a gallery and you see a, a painting and then you have the explanatory note or text besides it, which Bart calls encourage or anchoring, I think that's what the voice does for us, tells the audience how to listen to this uh, sound. They sort of frame it. Also, it becomes... Interestingly, for our contemporary sonic imagination, the background of that music, because a lot of time in contemporary music or sound-based theatre, music is the sound cape out of which voice, song, we break into song, becomes the foreground uh, sound. But in that play, we have all these voices singing uh, and talking to each other, and then music becomes the foreground sound. But another aspect that's quite important, the second aspect, is... But if you listen to this language, we are, and you're right, we're in a world that is full of music, but I think it's a little bit more free-flowing, and I would call it a world of musicality. They had music, they had dance, they had rhythm, and very interestingly, in this play, we have no humans. The satires are half-animals, there is a nymph, there are two gods, there are cattle, so... It's a play about a world that's full of music that's now coming to human ears that codified as music. So it's a play that says that music has to do with what we would call, I don't know, anthropolistening, sort of centering the anthropos and the, the humans around the notion of music. And at the same time, sort of tongue-in-cheek telling us, but we had it all the way before you came to it. And that's a basic operating principle of the universe. Fascinating. Um, I wanted to pick up on the on the question of listening, because I, I, when you were talking about how sort of the listening develops and, and it kind of comes from a very basic understanding of that there are vibrations to a, an appreciation of melodic differentiation, essentially. Um, it's interesting if you look at some of the the more recent theories on listening or philosophies, I'm just thinking about Chion again with his three modes of listening. It's almost the opposite. You know, it's almost like there is semantic listening first and foremost because that dominates our day. We, yeah, the, as you, dear listener, are you doing right now? You're 
listening to this particularly with an imp- with a, with an interest in what what we are saying or what um, the meaning is. And then there's a second layer which is about sort of where does this come from, which also features in the play. Where is this underground? We need to stomp to find out what, what this is. And then and only then, sort of almost as a kind of archaeological discovery, you dig deeper and then you get to the sound itself. What is the sound itself? What are the vibrations? How could we describe it? And the same goes for, for language. How do you describe it? So sometimes they talk about uh, what the sound sounds like. Sometimes they talk about how it, it may be produced, so they fantasize about what could, could create that sound. And then at some point, uh, they probably also think about what it means, what its, what its function is, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's quite fascinating because it's really uh, a number of ways in which we engage with theater music or theater sound as well, that you know sometimes it's predominantly there to guide our attention, to structure a play, also to obviously create uh, emotions, atmospheres etc so it, it kind of covers that range in a, in a very early example although I'm just curious what kind of research or what kind of sort of knowledge basis was there to to uh, talk quite sophisticatedly about the role of music and sound in theatre at this early stage already um, that's a very interesting question the first thing to say is for me the play does quite the opposite of uh, sort of Sion's or Sefer's um, uh, tactics yeah. it uh, sort of says that sound might be meaningless which is closer to the reduced mode of, of listening by Sion but it's never contextless so it always either indexes identity or has effects on people so I understand, uh, in my understanding of Sion's project, it's a sort of late 80s, 90s, uh, Northern European strategy, or even American earlier on in the 70s, of trying to work against codified appreciations of music and trying to refound what sound in itself was and creating the project of sound studies. But uh, in this uh, play, we have a desire to keep it in context. It's always about something about um, gods, about animals, about our connections, about our effect in the theatre. When it comes to, to, to music and appreciation, again, it's quite interesting because by that point, we're talking late 5th century before Common Era in, in Greece, so most of the contemporary philologists play, place the play around 430 or 420 that decade. By that point, in classical Athens, uh, pedagogy has been codified, solidified, that it's around music and sports. So everyone in Athens has had some sort of basic training in music. And the lyre, the instrument that uh, the play talks about, was the first version of a string instrument that trainees used in their education. So pretty much everybody in Athens, or pretty much everybody, free citizens in Athens, would have had training in so there is this basic level of, uh, of appreciation. Now, in terms of that, I find that Sophocles is also a little bit meta because he was a trained kitharodos, uh, uh, which means playing the kithara, which is the advanced version of the, the lyre. It has more strings, it's wooden, it's not by tortoise, uh, etc. for a couple of reasons. The first one is... In ancient Greek drama, the instrument that was accompanying the, the chorus uh, next to the female or sometimes behind the scene was the instrument of God Dionysus, which was the aulos, which is the two-reed flute. So there are a couple of hypotheses around how the play was staged. 
The first one, really basic one, that I'm not sure it holds too much truth, but it's worth entertaining, is that as per convention, the instrument playing throughout the production was Aulos, and everybody in the play sort of said, what's that sound? Oh, liar. So we hear the sound of a wind instrument, and because we talk about it, we name it as the sound of liar, everybody goes, oh, that's a sound that I haven't heard before. Second option is that we hear our loss throughout the production, but then there are moments when we hear the lyre. So again, there is a juxtaposition against convention and what the play needs. Third option, that we hear the kithara, the advanced version, because I would think, and a lot of archaeologists would think, that nobody would play the lyre in a big sort of um, politicized and open public space because it's quite basic for, for, for Greeks. They would play the kithara, which where they played for poetry competitions. So again, there is this meta level where somebody plays the kithara and people talk about it as the lyre, a different kind of uh, string uh, instrument. Or it could be all of the above. <laughs> So there is already a sort of guide in your sonic imagination in hearing the sound as something else that it isn't. Now, the second interesting thing about context there is that around the middle of the 5th century in classical Athens, there was a big public debate around the role of music, which is later on is reflected in the writings of Plato. And what happened, there was this competition of music and poetry, Panathena, and in four four. Six, I want to say, Kitharodos, uh, um, guitar player, kithara player from uh, Mytilene, another city, won in Athens, and he was also the inventor of a kithara version with extra strings, and the inventor of not pure tones but melismas in between tones and you know melismatic melody. And there were the hardcore <laughs> people, conservatives, that said, that's not music and what's happening there. And, of course, the, the public that went crazy with a new sound. And the, the whole debate was uh, around the new guitar sound, Nea Kitharodia. So it was a very prominent discourse in Greece. So I think Sophocles, who was also a trained Kitharodos, was commenting on new music. It's as if you have people that know classical harmony and suddenly, you know, the dodecaphthong comes about and the play talks about that. There's two fascinating strands opening up. One is um, that what we're really talking about is comedy and meta-narratives and, and that play with the idea that there is no instrument when there is an instrument and, and what, we're, what we're believing in a play. So that whole sense of, of the way a play is constructed is being explored here in a really interesting way and one that perhaps we haven't ever discussed in relation to Greek theatre. So I wonder perhaps if we could talk a bit about that and, and from then move to, to then how on earth do you deal with that in the present? Another two fascinated questions. So, fascinating. The first one is, yes, this play, in a way, has become one of the primary sources that we now use to sort of trigger our acoustic imagination into listening back to, 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 to theatre and what it could achieve sonically and orally and um, acoustically, especially in combination with, uh, with other uh, sources. For me, it's actually more engaging to talk about what we did with that in the contemporary day, which is, you know, the history of, of music, uh, of the production nowadays. So I'll give you a few examples. So the play was first staged in Germany 
in Halle by a German philologist slash archaeologist, Karl Robert, who reconstructed uh, the play, filled in the gaps from the other sources, with students. And uh, the only sound he used was the lyre. Very, you know, uh, scarcely in the play. And the voices. And voices, of course, of course. Yes, I'm talking about music, sorry. Uh, the voices of the students. Then what happens is that Theodor Reinach, uh, German-French, he was researching... Fencing Greek music created a new uh, translation that was picked up by a French composer, Larbert Roussel, and the second staging is actually an opera. So that opera called La Naissance de la Lyre was performed in, in France in 1925, and it's because he was a sort of affiliate student of Debussy, very sort of expressionistic and Debussy-like and sort of pastoral, and so again, a whole other universe. The third very interesting production happens in Italy in uh, the, the early 30s by a Greek archaeologist, philologist, Ettore Romagnoli, who performs it in an open theatre. Uh, as far as we know, uh, the music was again the lyre, but he has this incredible idea, because it's an open space, to introduce real cattle. So we know that in the production, animals come on stage, and we hear the animals. That's pretty much what happened in the beginning of uh, the 20th century. Then there is a long gap in the history of productions of the play. And we must say that all these early productions come from people that are very interested in ancient Greek music as well and use the play to do the research and reimagine the acoustic past a little bit more. So, for example, Reinar, he writes a book on ancient Greek music a year after he stages the play. And he was also the person that 10 years earlier had decoded the musical notation of uh, the Apollo Pean in Delphic inscriptions. Ettore Romagnoli is another very interesting case because with this listening back and sort of vision of antiquity is also reflected, because the contexts are quite important as well, in the fact that he was a member of the party at the time of Mussolini. And I think that's the reason why we have a big gap in the history of productions in the middle of the 20th century. Skip to 1980s, when we have a renewed interest in the play. Uh, there are a couple of sort of half productions or choreo drama productions in Greece. The most influential one comes from the UK. It's by Tony Harrison. Tony Harrison writes an adaptation of the play, which is called The Trackers of Oxyrinchus. Uh, the middle section is basically a translation of the play, but what he does is the opening uh, scene, uh, the two British archaeologists that found the, the fragments, the papyri in Egypt, and uh, Grenfell and Hunt, and they have a discussion about the role of archaeology and why do what are we trying to, to, to find, etc., etc. And then they turn into the characters of the play. And then the third section, which was first performed in the Ancient Theatre of Delphi in 1988, the satires, they party, they have a big sort of, yes, we're now free, etc., etc. And when he gives them the, the gold, uh, he gives them big blocks of um, gold, and then as they unwrap them, the gold falls out, they become boomboxes. 
and there's this sound of 80s, very contemporary, and that all has to do with the 80s and, you know, Thatcher years in the UK and class, uh, etc. And then in, at the closing of, of, of the play, they say to Apollo, oh, we like the lyre, can we play it? And Apollo says, no, you're not worthy of this sound. So there is the battle between the upper music, aristocratic music, and the boomboxes. And what do they do? They turn into 1980s hooligans that destroy the set, which is paper and fragments of the papyri, and uh, they turn it into balls and they play football and they destroy the set and they say, okay, our culture is boomboxes and football and we didn't care about this lofty high culture. When he restages Tony Harris on the play for the National Theatre in 1990 across to 1992, in that final section, we still have the boomboxes and music comment, but also... The, the set becomes a cardboard because it was performed at the National Theatre, the cardboard city back in the day. There were a lot of homeless people. So it becomes a comment about the people that are excluded from theatre and what is perceived as high culture. And what also Tony Harrison does very well in the play is the satires speak in northern accent. Uh, and also use boomboxes and the dance that he, he uses, which was actually nominated for, for an Olivia Award uh, for choreography, is clock dancing. All this, I'm going to take everybody out of uh, the cave. They, they do clock dancing from the north. Uh, so it becomes a comment about the role of music in contemporary society. And I think now that has stayed with the play. And in some sort of way, I'm not quite sure whether Tony Harrison was aware of it because it's much later the research that we now know about Nekit Arodia. It's what Sophocles did back in the day as well. What, you mean he used regional accents and regional dance styles? Or? He was commenting on music and the role of music and the difference between who's included, excluded in the ah, listening right. of music. Okay, so... Because I think I think there are two kinds of politics going on, aren't there? There's one one is that whole sort of class-based thing about what we think of as music, um, and and the, then the other is just this idea of description and naming when you're doing it already. And I think I think one is comic, and the other is deeply political. And and I think that's what's interesting about what you're talking about is is this idea that you're you have both comedy and politics intertwined at this very, very early stage in, in Greek theatre. Yeah, and the satire play, as far as from, from what we know, it occupies this middle, in-between territory between tragedy and comedy. It doesn't become as sort of... It doesn't have direct political commentary. In comedy, you have paraphrases where everything stops and we address the audience or we make the comment or we use contemporary names of politicians. Uh, but... The satire play uses some of the movement or, you know, linguistic conventions, not all of them. And at the same time, the characters are gods and nymphs, and uh, the, most of the linguistic landscapes retains the sound of tragedy. So it's that in-between territory that says, oh, we're sifting to light relief, while at the same time occupying this high art <laughs> place in our imagination. Well, well, not just in our imagination, but presumably in the theatre space, because it, it, it becomes almost as though um, voice and movement and the sounds they produce are not music, and only instrumental music is music. And, and I think that is a really interesting conversation, because, of course, that completely negates voice from the discussion of music, and of course, then we have hundreds of years of symphonic music, um, so I, or thousands, in fact. So you know, I, I think it's really um, interesting, and 
which is why I think you should talk about what you have done with it in the contemporary period. Yeah, in this particular production, what uh, Mikhail Marmarinos did and, and the team around him, uh, actually, in a way, in more intuitively and instinctively and artistically, because the, that production was an artistic production. Of course, I was a member of the team that also had a research agenda, but you know, the primary drive was artistic. It sort of returned us to voice. So what happened was, uh, after the first period of research, the, the, the final aesthetic is this. So you are in Epidaurus, in the orchestra, and you have the big theatre of Epidaurus. And what we did was, in terms of the sound that was on stage, first of all, all the satires were these uh, cattle-identifying bells, each one of them a different one, so you could hear them as different human animals. And also, we, we had a, a platform on, on one part of the stage where you could stomp. There, it, there was wood so that you can make all the sounds of stomping and etc. But underneath it, we had sensors, and that sound got amplified. We could play with lots of, sort of rhythmic ways that became really sort of vibrant, and the audience could, could feel them. So it, it, that was the sonic environment of the stage. Now, for the first time, we had to go through a long process with the sort of uh, archaeological team of Epidaurus. We were allowed to also use the auditorium. So we placed four musicians in different parts of the auditorium, and the music by Billy Bultil, who composed the music slash soundscape for the production sound design, was two tubas and two euphonia, uh, and they were spread across. And although it was music, it sort of signified the cattle, because we have two kinds of sounds, the cattle that were, and then music. In the sonic imagination of, of the piece, in the sonic environment of the piece, it sort of became these two things. And then at the very top, and this is a very large theatre, instead of being under the earth was God Hermes. Behind the audience, they don't see him as they enter the, the space, and Steve Katona, who was the German countertenor that performed uh, Hermes, whenever the satires hear a sound, was performing really high-pitched, complex, almost extra-normal operatic sounds. So that voice became the signifier of the new music. At the very last part, Hermes appears on stage. He had to cross the audience singing, and then the musicians followed him because both Cattle and Hermes arrive on stage. Then 
when he talks to, to Apollo, another interesting sonic element was that he spoke uh, quite in his singing register. It was a speech song, so he retained that sort of almost recitativo plus singing voice. And he also spoke in an accent, which in Greek theatre, especially in Epidaurus, is a little bit, you know, not done very, very often. So the, um, the new sound was uh, a countertenor presenting himself as the new instrument and uh, German-inflected modern Greek in speech song being the new sound of, uh, of the god. And the final lovely touch by Mikhail uh, in this production was the, the, the person that performed uh, Silenus, the older leader, very comic one, was Stamatis Kraunakis. Stamatis Kraunakis is perhaps the most famous uh, Greek composer. He has written a lot of, uh, not pop music, he has written a lot of uh, popular music, but really quite advanced. He has discographed a lot. So everybody knows him. But he performs a spoken part. He never sings once in the play, so that you have all these expectations of the audience expecting Stamatis Kraunakis to sing or have his own sort of style of music. And only in the end, when everybody leaves and he goes off, his final words are almost sung, like this promise of the composer we all know and love. And that's a really fascinating point, because <clears throat> it reminds us how much um, intertextuality, or dare I say, intermusicality, is is almost always at play because you're saying it's you don't just listen to the music or the sound but you also listen to what it references the, the kind of context it comes it comes from the kind of connotations you've talked about class about high and low you know what music do we associate with what um, I was wondering to what degree and, and this may be an irrelevant question but from my scarce understanding of, of ancient Greek music there is not only an aesthetic debate that you've talked about earlier, um, but also an ethical debate. So it, it used to be that certain modes would sort of be used in, in education to fortify your courage or make you a forthright person, etc., etc., uh, which is something slightly less perhaps common in in. in I don't know, in, in Germanic or Anglo, uh, sort of Anglophone music education, it's, it's all about aesthetics. And I, the, the, the notion of playing in a certain key will make you a better person is, is a bit foreign to us. But does that play into this world and this play? Is that still something that, you, that, that people deal with consciously? Or is that just a... I could only make suppositions yeah. about it. And... Um, Music in ancient Greece is quite a complex uh, subject, uh, and we all and we know a lot about other sources. So the kind of debate that you're describing comes primarily from Plato, who is very suspicious of the arts in particularly general, theater, actually, particularly yeah. theater, because of the effects uh, it has on, on people and how it's not about purity of ideas and influencing their rightful ethics. Uh, and of course, music plays a big part in it and how it's staged and how it is perceived. Yes, there were certain modes that were assigned to good education and moral. And what I can say about that, it also has to do not with a perceived ethics, but a function. In ancient Greece, you had choric songs whose primary purpose was you know, to sort of build community and create, you know, sort of sort of um, mini versions of citizenship and community, but you also had songs for war, songs for dancing, songs for symposia, songs for theatre, music that was performed at festivals. So yes, you have different functions allocated to music. 
Because Plato tells us that he would like music to do this or that and affect people in certain ways. I'm not quite sure that this is what music did or what some philosophers or music educators wanted it to do. That there's a fine distinction there. I think there is an element of truth that some people believed you know, in its morale building or morality building as well in terms of ethics functions. But at the same time, music performed itself in various, various uh, ways. I, I wonder, I, I, I'm still um, I'm still thinking about the, 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 the notion that Apollo becomes the, the god of music through through this story. And then I'm thinking, because you also described the almost um, feral ways of stomping and screaming and the, the cattle and so forth. And so forth. so the, there is that Apollo Dionysus dichotomy there. Is that described in the play? Is that something? Because it seems that this personification, allocating music to both to Dionysus and to Apollo in, in various ways, really speaks to those two tensions in the music, generally speaking, that it could have a, a sort of an, uh, an educating and morally sort of nourishing and, and kind of orderly aspect to it, which would draws to the Apollinian and and a sort of imbricating uh, control losing nature etc etc I'm saying this of course uh, because um, German literature in particular I'm thinking of Thomas Mann and others are obsessed with Apollo and Dionysus and Nietzsche is of course as well so I don't know to what degree that, that actually all goes back to Sophocles and even this play or is that just a part of that universe of, of thinking Again, I can only make uh, suppositions because I'm sort of researching this play as a voice researcher and my philology, even though I've trained in it, is at, at best sort of informed amateur philology. Uh, but I have talked to a lot of people and I've read quite a bit on the play. My sense is that kind of clear dichotomy uh, is sort of the way Europeans at a certain point in their own nation building and therefore cultural building project projected on ancient Greece. And I think Greece of antiquity was not very fond of dichotomies. Uh, so to, to give the example here, you have Sophocles, who everybody knows as the rightful citizen, the very sort of serious and complex tragedies. Here showing us that that dichotomies don't necessarily exist because he tells us that music was invented as an as an act of a very mischievous child that became a thief, and that Apollo, who's the god of rightful ethical music, who was second-hand god of music, and he had to bargain to get uh, to that role. And first we see him really, as I said, upset and disheveled and the god of cattle. So he's becoming the advocate or sort of emblem of a specific kind of music is a project and it's a process that we sort of trace and follow throughout the play. And I think that's the comment that's been made here that music is a wide spectrum and even the gods that come to exemplify specific ends of the continuum within which music operates came there as a process. Therefore, they're sort of made, acculturated as these symbols. So in terms of the, the sort of contemporary production of this, um, how is that continuum explored and what are the... Basically, I want you to describe a bit more what it what it sounds like. This this continuum. Um, you've talked about the instruments and the, and the sort of 
kinds of sounds they're making and the uh, intermusical or inter- intertextual associations, intercreature associations, I guess, between humans and, and cattle or whatever. But um, what's that sound world that we're listening to and, and how is that feeding into a potential atmospheric, intellectual understanding of this work? The first thing to say about this production, and that's very typical of Mikhail Marmarinos's aesthetic, is that he works for months on end on the musicality of the text. I'm not quite sure whether Mikhail would want me to say that, but I think he would. Uh, I overheard him in one rehearsal, leaning over to Stamatis Kraunakis, the composer, while the chorus was rehearsing and saying to him, I'm convinced, even though I'm a theatre maker, that everything is music. So his approach is very musical. And if you listen to, 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 to the text, is almost like a score in its rhythm, but not the old school way. There is a meter and we take it very seriously. It's actually an intervention in pedestrian everyday speech. You would speak the text in a specific way to make meaning out of it, and Mikhail breaks it down, changes the inflections or changes where the, the tone goes to create a multiplicity of meanings or designate that this is theatre-slash-musical speech rather than everyday speech. So there is now a tradition after Mikhail and a couple of other directors in Greece in modern Greek theatre that if you were to say, I don't know, what is this? This is a book, which is how it would make sense. It would be, what is it? This is a book. So there were different sort of breaks in the phrase or marks and punctuations that already musicalized the way the speech is delivered. And perhaps for a non-Greek speaking audience, the closest we can get to that is there is a Greek director, Georgos Lanthimos, who who created the Dogtooth or Favorite. And the way his actors speak, because he comes from this tradition of Greek directors, if you hear the actors, they speak in this speech song or musical tradition, which comes from Greek theatre, because he also worked in in Greek theatre, and he was very familiar with his directors. And for me, this sort of transnational travel of musicality of speech that's going on here in somebody like Rachel Wise or Olivia Colman speaking in almost in a Greek theatre tradition kind of speech. So the entirety of the production, first and foremost, is choric. You constantly listen to this satire, either when they speak or also they keep making background sounds. So they are the entire sonic and vocal landscape of, of the piece. The music, the euphonian tubas, are only heard at the beginning and the interventions of the cattle. And then in the end, they create, uh, they start, they end up playing almost like contemporary harmony because by that point they only make dissonant sounds or almost soundscape, punctums in the sonic uh, landscape. They almost create an exit band feeling.
And I think that has to do with something we never talked about in rehearsals, but I think in the end, Mikhail created quite cleverly. When the satires are given their freedom and they have this party, the whole final section is them saying, yes, we are free. And uh, in ancient Greece, they used to dance a vievan, they are tears to Dionysus and that celebrate. We have this melancholy music, almost like an exit march playing and the lights come down and all the musicians and the cattle disappeared and they are left on stage and their speech is like, yay, let's celebrate. Hey, we're free. So I think that suddenly we've seen them, you know, being so physical and loud, etc. They're left out of words, they're left out of music, they're left out of voice and they don't know what to do with their freedom. And I think that's also what the production is showing, that freedom for what, freedom towards what, and what do, what do we do with it? That's a really interesting sonic dramaturgy, isn't it? Uh, something occurred to me as you were speaking. If you're talking about this, this way of, of, of speaking and um, performing Greek text... To what extent might we make a, a comparison with um, other forms? So I'm thinking the diversity from Berio to London Road. You know, how would how does this sit within those? And how is it notated for the performers? Because, of course, London Road famously was partially orally communicated. The first thing to say is that, at least in Mikhail Marmarinos' productions, it's never notated. It's embodied and experimented with. Uh, Mikhail Marmarinos has a whole sort of system of working with instructions within which the performers improvise and then he keeps the elements of orality that stick with his sort of wider, uh, broader vision. So there is no notation, that's, that's for sure. But all the actors know by the end, because it's been three years of research, etc., where you know, there's an upper inflection, when there is a coma, when there's a pause, but it's an embodied understanding of this. It's rhythmical rather than notated. Now, within that spectrum, from, from Berio to London Road, which is an interesting spectrum that doesn't quite apply to the Greek context, <laughs> is that, yes, there is a tradition of avant-garde music as well in Greece, and in the Italian context of Berry, there's also Demetrio Stratos, who was one of the improvisers, vocalizers that participated into this creation of avant-garde vocality. There are just affinities with that in the sense that Mikhail wants to explore sound for all the possibilities of its meaning, but what anchors differently his approach is that he always uses classical text that in the end somehow makes meaning, even though he breaks it, whereas other people would just use sounds or random words and all that. In terms of London Road, in Greece we don't have quite uh, a sonic landscape that reflects on class and regionality in the way that London Road does. We do have some dialects in specific regions, but it doesn't quite apply to intersectional sonicity of both class and regionality. However, the way that Mikhail's actors and therefore the characters in his productions speak has something to do with breaking established conventions of speaking. So if we consider London Road an intervention into the voice cape of musical theatre and what this well-made sort of structured way of speaking and voicing and singing in musical theatre is, the only affinity is that he breaks what that is, proper speaking of the text, 
in uh, the context of both Greek drama and contemporary uh, drama. And at the same time, it's very well researched and very well done. It's not just experimental. You end up tuning into this new sort of way of speaking the text. And by the end of it, I'm not quite sure that everybody's alienated by it because it ends up being its own language. It's as if you are uh, tuning into another way of speaking. But it does raise an issue. First of all, the, the, the piece is made on the performers, and therefore they have some agency within it. But if this piece were performed again, are the performers therefore becoming effectively robots? And even down to the, the, the phrasing and the intonation of their speech, because that's, that's a, um, a charge that is sometimes levelled, not just at musical theatre, but also against some kinds of verbatim theatre. I wouldn't think that anybody would uh, sort of uh, reproduce or revive that production. We don't have a tradition of revivals in Greece. It's always a new production of. So I don't think, again, in the Greek context, that wouldn't become uh, a concern. Of course, there is the ownership of the actors. And as I said, Mikhail in the 80s was the advocate of devised theatres. It's always in collaboration with. And even and, and in terms of the team around him, There was Mikhail, of course, that has a very musical way of uh, creating and has his own system of uh, training as well that has been written extensively about. But there was Billy Bulthill who wrote the, the music and he also improvised a bit with Steve, the countertenor. Uh, so the music in itself has Steve's improvisations within it and some of the musicians, even though the tuba and euphonium parts have been written in the end. There's the sound designer that amplifies the sound. Actually, the whole scene where they stomp on the platform and gets different rhythms was created by the actors and all of us chipping in. Mikhail wanted a specific sort of dramaturgy of the sound. And then Silenus, the composer, Stamatis Kraunakis, sort of saying, oh, yeah, perhaps we can try that sound. And I had played with a lot of the actors in terms of rhythmic training the first year of... So there is always this element of co-composition and embodied ownership by everybody. And yet there is somebody called a composer and somebody called a director. Yes, of course. <laughs> and I think that has to do with the fact that we are very much operating within a tradition of auteur, uh, director. All of us contributed, all of us worked in different capacities. Even I started as a vocal archaeologist slash assistant and then sort of became, for example, the, the trainer of Steve Katona, the um, countertenor in Greek. <laughs> so we kept changing and shifting sort of trajectories within the production, but it was always in accordance with what Mikhail had in mind, which was not we're aiming for this result, It was what, here is an area that's of interest to me, let's all delve in and see what's going to come out of it. So a joint, joint exploration of, of the materials. Yes, yes. so it's very much, in a way, uh, both collaborative and uh, authored. Wonderful. I think, looking at the time, we should probably uh, uh, wrap this up, but I, I think this has been an absolutely fascinating insight into, into not only the play and its history and its performance history, but also contemporary uh, staging practices in the context really of such a layered and complex history and, and, and so forth. Uh, so thank you so much, Konstantinos, for sharing that with us uh, and, uh, and hope we'll speak about some more productions in future episodes to come. Thank you very much. Thank you.